Hello and welcome to Grand Final History for a special supplementary episode on the father of football, Henry Coldham Antle Harris, better known as Coldham or, for his close friends, Collie. Mr Harris died in 1929, aged 92. I covered this in episode 32, but given his significant role in the development of Australian football, he deserved a separate episode. We will explore his childhood, the move to Melbourne, and his professional, personal, and athletic life. We will also cover the early history of football and the foundational role played by his cousin and also his brother-in-law, Tom Wills, and the subsequent recognition that was granted to Colden Harris, a recognition that may have faded in recent years as Tom Wills' profile has risen. His life and family bridged the early convict settlement era through to the establishment of Melbourne as a major city, federation, and the introduction of modern technologies such as telephones, radio, and aircraft. And as we will see, he fostered the development of Australian football as a game, as an entertainment for spectators, and set the foundations for the extraordinary enterprise that the AFL has become. Colden Harrison was born in 1836 at the pastoral property Jarvisfield in Picton, New South Wales. Jarvisfield was owned by Colden Harrison's uncle, Henry Colden Antle, who had arrived in New South Wales as the aide-de-camp to Governor Lachlan Macquarie in 1809. Macquarie had been sent out to the young New South Wales convict colony to fix up many problems including the notorious Rum Rebellion. The property is now a golf course, but it's a good example of how recent white settlement is in Australia. There may still be people alive today who, as children, might have met Colton Harrison before he died in 1929. And yet, Colton's uncle was a key part of the administration of the very early years of the New South Wales colony. Colden Harrison's father decided to take up land in Port Phillip in 1837, while it was still a part of New South Wales. He spent three months travelling over land with his wife and one-year-old son Colden, along with sheep and cattle. They eventually settled on the Plenty River, on land now occupied by the Yanyin Reservoir. Here, Colden recalled he lived a bush life, fishing for blackfish, yabbies and eels, and allegedly even had an encounter or two with bushrangers. Less romantic histories tell of a property that was too small to be profitable, lost stock, and a father who accidentally shot himself in the arm, leaving a permanent injury. Hard times. At 14, Colden was in Melbourne, boarding at the Dyson Grammar School, a forerunner of Melbourne Grammar, the pattern of senior football administrators coming from Melbourne's private schools has a long history. In the early 1850s, his father took him to the goldfields, where they lived in a tent and tried for their fortune. After three months, they'd made about £100. While his father got caught up in political activities on the diggings, Colden found himself hungry and struggling to sleep in a tent on flea-infested blankets. In the second half of 1853, he made his way back to Melbourne, 
a town that was experiencing boom times as the gold rush saw a massive increase in population. The streets may have been wide, but they were as yet unpaved, drainage and sewerage was primitive, and people were looking for accommodation wherever it could be found. Then, age 17, he entered the Victorian Colony's Customs Department as a title officer based in Williamstown. A title officer's duties included boarding ships as they arrived, assessing the value of their cargo, and imposing the appropriate import duties. He seems to have done well, and in 1860, after seven years in the job, he was transferred to Geelong for a year. He married Emily Wills, Tom's sister and his cousin, in 1864 when he was 28. Emily was described as being of independent means, and between his successful public service career and her own independent means, they were able to live a comfortable life, and Colden was able to pursue his amateur sporting interests in his leisure time, sporting interests that would bring him fame and recognition. He was Victoria's amateur athletic champion for nine years, defeating all comers in 100 and 440 yards, as well as hurdles and steeplechase. In 1888, when he was 52, he transferred to the Victorian Titles Office and eventually became the Registrar of Titles. That is, he was responsible for managing land titles in Victoria until his retirement in 1900, age 64. It was a successful professional career, and given the role in land titles, you might be interested to see the layout of his large mansion home in Walpole Street, Kew. The property was subdivided after his death, but the State Library of Victoria has board of work maps for many old properties, and these show a large home with croquet lawn, tennis court, and fish ponds. A copy is available on the grandfinalhistory.au website. So how did Colden become the father of football? It starts with his cousin, Tom Wills. Tom Wills was already known in the colony of Victoria for his cricketing feats when he published his famous letter calling for a game of football to keep cricketers fit in July 1858. On the 31st of July 1858, a game of football of sorts was played, but with no clearly understood rules and the players having a range of experience and expectations, it had very little resemblance to the game that we know today. But the seed had been planted, and football in Melbourne, however it be defined, was getting people's attention. Perhaps the timing was right. The city was young. The population was growing, with people clearly open to new ideas. The fact that they had moved to Melbourne indicated they were open to opportunity. And with the increased prosperity of the times, there was increased leisure time for playing sport or being a spectator. In May 1859, not quite a year after that first scrappy game, Tom Wills and three of his colleagues met in the Parade Hotel, just over the road from the MCG. There'd been more attempts to play a game of football, but it was agreed that some commonly understood rules were required. Over a few drinks, they defined and documented the first set of agreed rules for Australian football as a unique game. The need was clear. Confusion about rules was leading to disputes, fights, and even broken limbs. The first laws of the game, as defined by Tom Wills, James Thompson, William Hammersley, and Thomas Smith, had only ten rules. 
a player of the time later described them as, quote, simple and concise, easy to remember, and free of all those peculiarities which render the rules of various schools in England so difficult to remember, end quote. By way of comparison, association football, or soccer as it is often called, did not define their rules until 1863, four years after the ten laws of Australian football were set down in the Parade Hotel. A critical, fundamental point by the founders was to avoid an offside rule, for simplicity and to allow the ball to be passed forward to players upfield. And to be clear, Colden Harris was not involved in these original laws of the game. So, there were simple, easy-to-remember rules, but there was still no organised competition. Clubs would form, challenge each other to games, and players could play for different clubs as their availability and inclination suited. And some clubs dissolved as quickly as they formed. Games were played on paddocks, and definitely not the sacred cricket grounds. But it was popular with both players and spectators. Tom Wills was an elite sportsman, renowned for both his football and cricket abilities, even if he could be a challenging person to deal with. He developed innovative tactics. Rather than massing all of the players around the ball, as was common, he got his teammates to space themselves out along the playing area. And then, with fast kicks, they were able to move the ball rapidly up the field in a manner that caused amazement. By the early 1860s, Colden Harrison was starting to make a name for himself for his football and running exploits. Now working in the city rather than Williamstown, he became captain of the Richmond football team. Not the Richmond club that would join the VFA and then the VFL. This was one of those early teams that came and went. He succeeded Tom Wills as the captain of Melbourne, and then, when his work at the customs office relocated him to Geelong in 1862, he became the captain of Geelong. When, returning to work in Melbourne in 1863, he once again became the captain of the Melbourne Football Club. Colden's football talents were recognised, voted as champion of the colony five times by the local press. He could drop kick a goal from 50 yards in a time where balls were heavier and more difficult to handle than modern footballs. As the 1860s progressed and Melbourne continued to grow, the popularity of the game was also increasing. New clubs were forming both in Melbourne and country centres and crowds were often measured in the thousands and many women would also come to games. But seven years after the famous 1859-10 rules, drafted by Tom Wills and his colleagues, it was clear that the game's regulations needed clarification. Players had started running the entire length of the ground with the ball. So the Melbourne rules, as they were called at the time, needed some work. In 1866, Harrison was recognised as a leader for his skills in the game his captaincy of the Melbourne Football Club, and his network of friends, former teammates or schoolmates, now at clubs all across the city and suburbs. Delegates from the four leading clubs, Melbourne, South Yarra, Royal Park and Carlton, met to review the rules. The 30-year-old Harrison had been asked to draft a revised set of rules and to chair this committee. This meeting was held at the Freemasons Hotel, 
pubs and football have a long, intertwined history. Harrison used his experience and talents in communication and negotiation to bring a consensus, even if it meant giving up a personal advantage. Colden's well-known speed had helped him run with the ball, gaining ground in many games. But this was going to change. Some of the fundamental elements of the game that we know today were established. Bouncing the ball or touching the ground every five to six yards was required. Bumping and tackling were also allowed, but hacking of the shins was still banned. Goal umpires were introduced, although still no central umpire. Free kicks were decided by the team captains. Now there were 12 rules. The Amateur Athletics Club printed copies of the newly revised rules and these could be purchased from Colden for 11 shillings per thousand copies. The rules were soon adopted by all clubs around Melbourne and would be taken up by clubs in regional areas around Victoria. They helped create an attractive game. Rather than a heavy mass of bodies around a ball, in football games using these rules, a player could move quickly, pass to players further up the ground, and yet a fair tackle could swing the momentum. The game became even more popular. In 1870, there were some who questioned Harrison's playing style. One letter to the Australasian claimed that he had injured a man by deliberately jumping on him while he was down. Harrison would defend himself in the press as vigorously as he did on the field. He wrote to the same paper saying, quote, The Melbourne men have always played a straightforward and manly game. Football is essentially a rough game all the world over, and it is not suitable for men poodles and milksops. End quote. I'm not sure that would help as a defence at the tribunal in modern times. His last season as a player was in 1871. Melbourne was playing Carlton at the Albert Park Oval to see who would win the Challenge Cup. There was no time limit and no change of ends. The winner was the team that scored two goals first. Harrison lost the toss and Melbourne had to kick into a gale. Despite valiant defence and even when the wind eventually calmed down, it was Carlton who scored the two goals to take the prize. Harrison went home to bed, feeling every one of his 35 years. It took him a month to recover. His playing days were over, but he would continue to be heavily involved in the administration of the game, initially on the committee of the Melbourne Football Club. In 1877, football in Adelaide was experiencing the common challenge of clubs playing under different rules and different interpretations of what football was. Addressing the challenge was David Tupenny, a young man born in England with a childhood in Adelaide who returned back to England for his schooling and who had also spent time in Perth, Melbourne and New Zealand. Yet he was still only 19 when he managed to get the local Adelaide clubs to form the South Australian Football Association and adopt the Victorian rules as supplied by Colton Harris. This was the catalyst for the leading four clubs in Melbourne to form their own new organisation to give structure to the popular sport. On the 7th of May 1877, in Oliver's Cafe in Collins Street, the Victorian Football Association was born. For once, 
a key moment in football history, not in a pub. Nineteen years after Tom Wills wrote that letter, and eleven years after Colden had revised and standardised the rules, and six years since he'd played his last game, the VFA was established to coordinate the essentials of football in Victoria. The VFA's inaugural president was William Clark, a powerful landowner and rich grazier. Wealthy football administrators have been a common theme from the start of the game's history. There were two vice presidents, one of which was Colden Harrison. The VFA provided an overarching administrative structure to resolve disputes between clubs, adjudicate on rules, arrange intercolonial games and select Victorian teams, and, where necessary, discipline players. Initially, clubs still arranged their own games, but programming of the season's fixture soon became a VFA function too. Six years later, in 1883, Harrison chaired the first intercolonial conference designed to support uniform rules and coordinate intercolonial games. Games moved to enclosed cricket grounds from about the late 1870s, despite one Melbourne Cricket Club member complaining, quote, It was only a money-grubbing scheme to play on enclosed grounds so that a charge for admission could be made, end quote. But with 33,000 people watching South Melbourne defeat Carlton in 1890 on the MCG, the cricket clubs were more than happy to accept the revenue from admission. The move away from the paddocks of Royal Park and the tree-interrupted gravel fields outside the MCG onto to the enclosed cricket grounds saw the playing field transform from a rectangle to the oval that we know today. As well, with the benefit of charging admission, cricket ovals had fences around the ground. This stopped the hazardous practice of spectators moving onto the playing field to get a better view of the game. Victoria experienced a property bust, bank closures and depression in the late 1890s, generating significant financial pressures in homes and businesses. And this was felt in football clubs too. There was an unintended benefit in the spread of football to other states, in particular Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, as men left looking for work or their fortune on the goldfields, taking the Victorian game with them. The larger, more financially secure clubs were frustrated with the VFA, claiming, amongst other things, that they were providing too much support for the smaller, less secure clubs, and this led to the formation of the Victorian Football League in 1897. Harrison was a delegate from the Melbourne Football Club and one of the key figures in setting up the new competition. By 1905, the VFL had established itself as the leading football league in the country, and it was pivotal in organising the conference to establish the Australasian Football Council to ensure uniform rules for the game, coordinate interstate games and the Jubilee celebrations and future carnivals, and to promote the code especially in the reluctant northern states. Colden was the chair of the conference, lending his dignity and long history in the game to the proceedings. At this meeting, he was elected a life member of the Australasian Football Council for special services rendered to Australian football. In 1908, the Football Jubilee, with representatives from every state and New Zealand, celebrated 
50 years of the Australian game. 50 years since Tom Wills had written a letter to the paper and set up that initial scratch match on the grounds outside the MCG. While at the 50-year jubilee, the Australasian Football Council held a meeting. One of their first agenda items was to formally declare Colden Harrison the father of football, to recognise his role as a leading player in the early years and a pivotal administrator, helping to establish rules of the game and found the VFA as well as the VFL. In some respects, it was also a recognition that he was one of the few early pioneers of the game still alive. Despite the title, Colden Harrison always made it clear that he did not invent the game. In an article published in 1911, he gave credit to Tom Wills for suggesting that football should be introduced to Melbourne. He made it clear that Wills advised that they should not play football, as it was at rugby school, because it was unsuitable for grown men, but rather to work out a game for their own. But poor Tom Wills did not have a long nor happy life. Despite his unrivaled sporting prowess, his personal and business life was troubled, to say the least. After his return to Melbourne in 1856, he was articled to a Collingwood solicitor, but he never practised as a lawyer. The focus and inspiration that he demonstrated on the playing field did not flow into his personal or business life. Then came the tragic move to Queensland with his father to establish a property at Cullin La Ringo, about halfway between Gladstone and Longreach. While Tom was away getting supplies, his father and 18 other members of the party were massacred by a group of Gariri men, the local Indigenous people. It was one of the largest massacres of white settlers by Indigenous people in Australia. The attack was a reprisal for the unjustified murder by one of the Gariri men by Will's neighbour, Jesse Gregson, after a mistaken accusation of cattle theft. The murder of his father and his companions on what was supposed to be the start of a new chapter in his life would have been reason enough to trouble Tom Wills in his later years. But recent research has uncovered an even darker element of the story. There is an article published in Chicago in 1895 capturing the recollection of an old-timer's pioneering days in Queensland. This has some compelling evidence, including detailed and specific comments implying Tom Wills took part in the revenge attack on the Gariri, one of the most brutal, punitive expeditions in frontier history. It's a difficult article to read, with explicit racist content and many inaccuracies in the recollections have been noted. Yet, there are specific details, such as Will's outrage at the theft of his treasured Isingari cricket jacket, a memento of his time with the glamorous English Amateur Cricket Club. A copy of the article can be found on the grandfinalhistory.au website page for this episode, but be prepared for a confronting, disturbing read if you look it up. Tom Wills would return to Victoria and was clearly damaged by his experiences. He still maintained good relations with local Indigenous people, coaching a team of Aboriginals from Western Victoria 
who played a game on the MCG on Boxing Day 1866. This team would later travel to England, the first touring Australian cricket team in 1868, but Wills would not be with them. His erratic behaviour and excessive drinking was catching up with him. In May 1880, just 22 years after that now famous first football game, despite being under observation because of his own threats to himself, in the grip of delirium tremens, brought on by suddenly stopping drinking after one last bout, it's thought that he'd actually run out of money to buy any more alcohol, and while suffering paranoid delusions, he managed to stab himself in the heart with a pair of scissors. Dead at just 44. A sad, tragic end to a man who had shone so brightly on the Melbourne sporting landscape. And with so many scandals, the drinking, the erratic behaviour, the bad debts, a common-law wife, and suicide. Establishment Melbourne, at the start of the new century, was not going to elevate Tom Wills to a high profile in the new game's history when it could bestow the honour on a respectable, sober, mature, successful sportsman and administrator. And Colden's recognition was not without merit, as we have discussed in this episode. As late as 1926, when Harris was 90 years old, a journalist who saw him at the MCG wrote, quote, Every groundsman and official and member is a friend of his. He loves to loiter in the dressing rooms, where there is the reek of training oil and perspiration. It's the smell of powder to a warhorse. Before the game starts, he has some advice to give to both sides. It is to tell them to play the game, and that to remember, football is a game. End quote. 1926 was also special for Colden, as his beloved Melbourne Football Club won the Premiership that year, the second in their time in the VFL. Of course, he was found joining the celebrations in the change rooms after the game. The team he had captain on the gravel fields outside the MCG when the game was young, with rules he had helped define, had just triumphed in front of 60,000 people. In 1927, another football carnival was held in Melbourne, though New Zealand had long ago dropped out of contention. Every Australian state was represented. During the festivities, perhaps reflecting on the fact that in Melbourne alone, attendance over a VFL season would exceed 2 million people, the chairman of the Australian Football Council, Alfred Moffat of Western Australia, said Mr Harrison and his colleagues had billed better than they knew. Outside of football and his professional career, Colden Harrison was a physically active man engaged in running, cricket, rowing, boxing and gymnastics. He would spend Christmas holidays on the Yarra with his brother, rowing a small boat, fishing and camping, perhaps recalling their childhood on the Plenty River or Goldfields. In 1896, when he was 63, he surprised all by riding a pushbike from Melbourne to Sydney in the February heat. On roads that were not sealed, he averaged about 100 kilometres a day. He made it to Sydney in time to watch a test match between Australia and England, feeling fit and having lost about 3.5 kilos. On family matters, Colden and Emily would have experienced joy, but also much sadness. 
They had ten children, but five died before the age of four. One son, Norman, became an architect, but died of dysentery aged 25. Of the four surviving daughters, two married and two remained at home. Adding to the loss within the family, his grandson died suddenly aged four. Yet Colden himself seemed indestructible, even surviving a fall from a tram when he was 87. While he may have been the father of football, with the loss of so many children and his only grandchild, Colden left no direct descendants to carry on his heritage. Colden Harrison was 92 when he died. He was buried at the Burundara Cemetery in Kew, with representatives from the league, clubs and interstate competitions. The VFL supplied a wreath in the shape of a football made of violets. The new league headquarters on the corner of Spring and Little Collins Street were named Harrison House, but this connection was lost when the VFL moved to new headquarters in Jollymont Road, East Melbourne, in 1972. Harrison House at 61 Spring Street was sold and demolished in the 1980s. A grandstand was built at the MCG in 1908, also named for Harrison, but that was demolished in 1936 to make way for the Southern Stand. His home in Kew, Molongolo, was sold, demolished and subdivided in the 1930s. So now Henry Colden Harrison is remembered in football history books and the occasional football podcast, but the game he helped nurture is the most fitting memorial to the man. Join me next time when we return to the usual format and look at season 1930. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. And if you have questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History.